0: Well, let us open our Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, and even though our focus will be upon verse 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Let's pray before reading. Our Father, again, may your Holy Spirit illumine the page of Scripture and open our minds and hearts that we may receive this truth to our comfort and assurance, but also that we may be challenged by it to be Christians who are active in the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ through the world. As we have heard tonight this wonderful testimony of your work in France, we know that behind it all is your electing grace, and we ask that our hearts may be stirred by this glorious truth to be faithful to the one who has called us. For we ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Ephesians, the first chapter, beginning with verse 3. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The love of God, infinite beyond comprehension, is so wondrous and so deep and so far beyond us, and yet it is the Christian's privilege to always attempt to plumb the depths of what it means that God loves His people. To say election is to say the love of God. Don't shrink from electing grace, but revel in it because it is all about the love of God. In Ephesians 1, election is the first of the blessings that Christians have in Christ. We are told in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then as Paul the Apostle begins to enumerate the blessings that we have in union with Christ, the first blessing is election in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so to say election is to say the love of God as we also read in verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Election is the source of our praise to God. It is the fount of wonder in our Christian lives. It is the food of our sustenance. It is a plank in our assurance of faith. And let us remember it is a biblical doctrine. We do not preach election simply because we are Presbyterians. Presbyterians do not believe election because we're Presbyterians. We believe election because it's taught in the Word of God. It pervades the Bible. And lest you think that it is only Presbyterians who do or have preached these wonderful truths, let me remind you that all through the history of the Church, those who have studied God's Word have been moved to embrace these truths, to believe them, and to preach them to the people of God. Indeed, if we were to go back to medieval Roman Catholicism and we went to the great Summa of Thomas Aquinas, you would find it there. If you moved forward in history to the Reformation and looked at the writings of Luther, you would find that this doctrine pervades his writings. If we came further to the Baptist Confession of 1689, you would find that doctrine clearly taught there. You find it in the Anglican Articles of Religion and the Congregationalist Savoy Confession, and I've not yet mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so what a wonderful thing it is that the people of God throughout history have understood these things. Not only understood these things intellectually, but experientially, every Christian knows that if we're saved, it is all together because we have a loving and gracious God who does it. Now, I want to, from this verse, verse four in particular, say five things about election and then draw some implications for it for the people of God tonight. The first thing that we want to say about election is that election is an act of God. God works on a plan. You can't miss that simply reading this first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Each person of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. According to this chapter, the Father has chosen us, Christ died for us, the Holy Spirit applies that work of redemption in verse 14. He seals the people of God until the day of redemption. Now, if you are a human architect, you will have a plan and you will attempt to execute that plan. There may be changes that come in the plan of the human architect, but there are no changes in the plan and purpose of God. But there are many who even profess faith in Christ who will not allow within their minds and hearts that God has a plan. He will allow it for a human architect, but will not allow it for God. But the scriptures teach that election is an act of God who works according to plan. Choosing is especially ascribed to the Father in verses 3 and 4. Jesus said, all that the Father giveth unto me shall come unto me. The Father has given to Christ a people. There's a children's poem that I really do like that comes from way, way back in the Puritan era, I think, that says this. God the Father thought it. God the Son bought it. God the Spirit brought it. The devil fought it. But thank God I got it. And that is really good catechesis. It's a good summary of what we find in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, don't you think? It is an act of God, it is his choice, not ours. John fifteen sixteen, ye did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans nine fifteen, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And in the eleventh verse of this chapter, we see that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now think about that for a moment. He works, that's divine providence. All things, that's the extent of his moral government. According to the council, that's his divine decree of his own will. That's the first cause behind all things. God's overarching, comprehensive, architectonic plan. What a wonder. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul tells us, God chose you from the beginning unto salvation. And so it's very clear from Ephesians 1, verses 3, 4, 5, 11, other places in the Apostle Paul, the teaching of Jesus himself, that God's work of election is an act that is dependent not upon us, but upon his own sovereign plan. Hence, it is secure, it is irrevocable, it is certain, because God does not change his decree. What a wonderful thing it is for us to know that having been chosen in Jesus Christ, that plan is an irrevocable plan. That he will not lose his own. Well, that's the first thing. Election is an act of God. The second thing that we see in this section of Scripture is that election is God's choice of individuals. Now, that does not mean that God merely foresaw who would believe and who would not believe because no sinner can believe in his own power. You remember a few Sunday evenings back, we looked at the second chapter of Ephesians, and we were told, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and what she, with which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul explicitly denies that election is based on foreseen faith for merit when he tells us in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, in verses 10 to 13... And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And so election is God's choice of individuals. Election is God's determination to save those chosen in Christ before creation, not because of anything in us, not because of anything that we had done or any foreseen faith or merit, but for his own glory. So that we are told in Acts 13, 48, as evangelism is taking place in the apostolic church, as many as were ordained to eternal life. Believed. We sing that great hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, of Covenant Mercy I sing. And isn't it true? We are debtors to the mercy of God alone. We have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute. It is all together of grace from first to last. Why do any believe who believe? Because God wills them to believe. Here's the power of the gospel. You see, a sinner says, just as we heard tonight, uh, I don't want to believe. <laughs> I don't want to believe. I remember sitting with a friend of mine who said that to me. I will not believe. I am never going to believe. I simply will not submit to Jesus Christ. And I told him, my friend, if God intends to save you, there's nothing that you can do to stop him. And that's true. And sometimes sinners need to hear that very truth because that's the truth that humbles the soul in the presence of the living God. God is not sitting upon his throne, wringing his hand, saying, I want you to believe, but I can't do anything about it. No, no, God does not do any such thing. If God intends to save a sinner, you cannot stop him. He does what he wills in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? The third thing I want to say about electing grace is that election is apart from any foreseen faith or merit in those He chooses. Now, we've indicated that, but I want to spend a little more time there. election is apart from any foreseen faith or merit on our part. That is to say, it is altogether unconditional. What could fallen creatures do, even as they were perceived in the decree of God from eternity? Fallen creatures could do nothing. Ephesians 1.4 confirms this unconditionality in two ways. Look at the verse again even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And so this unconditionality is confirmed, first of all, in that our election is in Christ, in union with Christ. We have believed in Christ. There is a faith union, but there is an aspect of our union with Christ that antedates our faith union. And according to this text, we were chosen in Christ. He is our great representative because we could not be chosen in ourselves. But also, another way in which the unconditionality of election is underscored is that the text tells us that election is before the foundation of the world. That is to say, it is totally unconstrained, totally unconditional. It is a matter of sheer sovereign grace. Let me be plain. In this great matter of election, you and I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. It is altogether according to the love, purpose, and sovereignty of God. As Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9, Who saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so we sing with Augustus Toplity, To thee, O Lord, alone is due all glory and renown, Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Thou wast thyself our surety in God's redemptive plan. In thee his grace was given us long ere the world began. It is sovereign, it is free, it is unconditional, it is based on the sovereign choice of God, not upon anything in our person. And this is the emphasis in Ephesians 1. We find, for example, in verses 5 9 and 11, an emphasis upon the will of God. And three times in this passage, we are told that this glorious plan of salvation is to the praise of His glory. It is altogether because of His glorious grace. But now there's a fourth thing I want to point out about election in this passage, and it is that election is to, it is unto salvation. Now, you can't miss that by reading the fourth verse in the entirety of the context of this passage. It tells us that we are chosen in Christ, that this is the blessing that we have in Him. Verse 7 tells us that for those same ones chosen, Christ shed His blood. Verse 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit seals those very ones for whom Christ died and who have been chosen even unto the day of redemption. It's all about salvation which is consistently taught in the Scriptures. In John six thirty seven, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth unto me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. And you'll remember how beautifully the Lord Jesus put this in John 10 when he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or think of how Paul puts it in Romans 8 when he says, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Or again in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, From the beginning God hath chosen you to salvation. And so electing grace is unto salvation. But now let me say a fifth thing about electing grace. Election brings the fruit of holiness of life. Again, look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now note that the apostle does not say here that we were chosen because we were holy or because we were considered to be holy but to make us to be holy. If God chose us from anything in ourselves, we are all unchosen, because the scriptures say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in Ephesians 2, we were dead in trespasses and sins. No, no, election is not because we are holy, because we were unholy but election brings with it the fruit of holiness. God chooses His people. Christ dies for His people, sheds His blood for His people, and then in time the Holy Spirit calls us unto Jesus our Savior. And when God converts us, it is traceable to His choice, and when He saves us, He changes us. There is a radical newness that comes about when a person is called by the Holy Spirit and is converted by the Spirit of God and his sovereign work of grace. That's really where the battle with sin begins, when we are called in grace to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I think evangelicals don't typically understand this because we're still influenced by Keswick holiness movements, the idea that we can be converted with no change of life, that holiness might be a later experience, a second work of grace, or some kind of higher plane of Christian living. But no, that's not true. When the Holy Spirit draws us, He radically changes us. Now, that change may be a very small change, but it is a real change. It's a wondrous change that grows and progresses throughout the Christian life, but a change and a radical change it is. It is the removal of a stony heart and the giving of a heart of flesh upon which God has promised to write His law. So what have we said thus far about election? Election. That according to this text, election is an act of God. Secondly, that election is God's choice of individuals. Thirdly, that election is apart from any foreseen faith or merit in those whom he chooses. Fourthly, that election is unto salvation. And fifth, that election brings with it the fruit of holiness. But the next thing I want us to do is think about some practical fruit and implications of this wonderful doctrine. And the first practical fruit, the first implication of this great theme of electing grace is that it brings to the heart and lives of the people of God a sense of utter humility. Humility. Nothing is so calculated to humble us than the recognition that there was nothing in me for which he chose me, nothing that I contributed to my salvation, that even my faith is his gift to me. If my salvation is all of grace, I owe all to him, and that humbles me into the very dust. Someone says, well, it's unjust, it's unfair. But that's the answer of pride, not the answer of humility. Paul answers that in Romans 9. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? You see, no one merits salvation. God would have been perfectly just had he allowed us all to go to perdition. And if he saves one, it is grace. It is undeserved. God is no man's debtor. But if you want justice... Let me ask the question, do you really want justice? Do you really want fair? Because the Bible says, here's what is just, here's what is fair. The wages of sin is death. That's fair. But God did not give us justice because his just wrath was poured out on the great substitute for his people on the cross, which was his plan for the salvation of his people from eternity. Well, God should have saved everyone, someone says. I don't like it. Well, no one ever thought that you would. We don't like it. We don't, by nature, like it. That's our problem. We don't want God to rule over our lives. So you see, the question is not, why did he die? Why didn't he die for everyone on the cross? The question is, why did he die for any? And when you answer that question, you have to say it is sheer love, sheer sovereignty, sheer grace, sheer mercy. No one deserves it. But you know, having said that no one wants this thing, let me qualify that. Because when the Holy Spirit begins to work in the hearts and lives of the people of God, they find that over time, they delight in this truth. It is so delightful to know that God has revealed these things and that in our hearts, there is a natural enmity against the sovereignty of God. But it's humbling to know that he is the potter. And I am the clay. It's humbling to know that grace, grace changes our enmity into a sense of wonder and into a a deep experiential love within the heart. So that again we sing, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced me in, the way it was originally written, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. Now, I remember a couple of years ago saying to our congregation, go read Jonathan Edwards' personal narrative. And one of our young people did that very thing. Uh, Left one Wednesday night and said, Pastor, can you get a copy of Edwards' personal narrative for me? And our young person took that and read it. Some of you adults can follow suit. It's a wonderful thing to read, Jonathan Edwards saying that before I came to faith in Christ, I hated the sovereignty of God. But then when God changed his heart, showed him his need of Jesus, drew him in, converted his soul, then Edwards was able to say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Now, only grace can do that because we naturally hate it. We don't want it. But when grace takes hold of the heart, we bow before his sovereignty and we say, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. So I think the first practical benefit of this doctrine in the Christian life is humility, don't you? But there's another, and it is assurance of faith. Assurance is a tremendous implication of this doctrine. God gives this doctrine for the comfort of God's people. He didn't give this so that you can lose yourself in some... In some. Um, uh morays of 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 rooms and 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 uh doorless uh uh rooms that, that you can't find your way out of. And he, he didn't give, as Calvin says, this this truth so that we can mount up to the blinding light of God's decree and peer into his sacred counsel. He's revealed these things to us so that we may humbly receive the assurance of faith that he intends for us to have. And so is your trust in Christ you say, yes, my trust is in Christ. Well, it is because he chose you that your trust is in Christ. What can change his decree? What can reverse his love? Nothing. You love Jesus because he first loved you. I remember as a teenager reading Inspiration, because I've been reading him since I was a teenager, reading Inspersion, that he preached in a Methodist church. Now, these were old-fashioned shouting Methodists, not the kind that most of us see today. And as he was preaching along, he said, now I come to my next point, electing grace. And all of a sudden, no one shouted. (laughs) No one was glad to hear it. He said, oh, you're not shouting your amens, but let me tell you, he said, you really believe this doctrine, it's right there in your hymn book, oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Now you see, that's assurance of faith. It's not like the girl who wonders about the boy who takes the daisy and says, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You needn't do that with Jesus. When Jesus comes into your life and gives you saving grace and saves your soul, throw the daisy away. Because Jesus loves you for time and for eternity, and he has always loved you, always has, always will. My love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same, no change Jehovah knows. I change, he changes not, the Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Isn't it wonderful to know that we can have assurance of faith because Jesus died for us. Behind that is God's eternal purpose and he has given us faith to embrace him. Now I think there's a third implication of this doctrine. It is very motivating and strengthening in the Christian life. Who can oppose God's elect successfully? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 9? Who, uh, Romans 8, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ who died. And so it motivates us in many ways. It motivates us to holiness. Election is a separation, so to speak. So I will live for him. If God so loved me, then I will also love him in return. And then we find that it is a tremendous motivation to evangelism. Those people who tell us that if you believe electing grace, that you're not going to care about the lost and you're not going to evangelize, they just don't know their church history, much less their Bibles. Jesus taught it. He came into the world to save sinners. Paul taught it. Have you ever known a more burning evangelist than Paul the Apostle, who wrote this chapter and other passages that we have referenced tonight? If God so loves me, then I also want to tell others of that love. And so we find Paul. We find George Whitfield, We find Jonathan Edwards. We find the Countess of Huntington. We could go on and on and on through history. Hasn't the Lord appointed a multitude whom no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth? Then we should go and we should take the gospel. Because let me assure you that every Christian is a Calvinist on his knees, everyone. I have never yet known a Christian who is an Arminian in his theology, get on his knees and pray this way, Lord, I'm praying for my Aunt Susie, because I really want her to come to Jesus. But then I know you really can't do anything about it. I really do know that she has to, of her own free will, come to this conclusion, and you, you really can't change that will, and so really I don't know why I'm on my knees praying anyway. I've never heard anyone pray like that. Every Christian on his knees is a Christian, and every Christian will say, Lord, save Aunt Susie. She's lost in sin, and she cannot save herself. Now, let me give you this little quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's taken from the Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray, and that is, as far as I'm concerned, that's the book of the hour. It really is important. Spurgeon says, "...I could not preach like an Arminian." What the Arminian wants to do is to arouse man's activity. What we want to do is to kill it once and for all, to show him that he is lost and ruined and that his activities are not now at all equal to the work of conversion, that he must look upward. They seek to make the man stand up. We seek to bring him down and make him feel that there he lies in the hand of God And that his business is to submit himself to God and cry aloud, Lord, save or we perish. We hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel he can do nothing at all. When he says, I can pray, I can believe, I can do this or I can do the other, marks of self-sufficiency and arrogance are on his brow. Let me read on. Spurgeon says, Do you not see at once that this is legality? that this is hanging our salvation upon our work, that this is making our eternal life to depend on something we do. Nay, the doctrine of justification itself is preached by an Arminian as nothing but the doctrine of salvation by works after all, for he always thinks that faith is the work of the creature and a condition of his acceptance. It is as false to say that man is saved by faith as a work as that he is saved by deeds of the law. We are saved by faith as the gift of God and as the first token of His eternal favor to us. That indeed is a wonderful thing. Let me add something, having mentioned Spurgeon. Spurgeon sometimes would say that he would preach those sermons that he was, they were just calculated to win the lost and no one would come to faith in Jesus. Then he would go into the pulpit and preach something like electing grace, which most people would say would never win the lost. And all these people came to faith in Christ. Why? Well, God is sovereign to use his word, but also there's just something about the teaching, the doctrine, that again humbles us into the dust. And that's exactly where we need to be as we come to faith in Christ. But now let me also say that this doctrine leads to worship. Now you can't miss that in Ephesians 1. If I had read this um, in the way in which I really uh, want to read it, you see, verses 3 through 14 are one, one sentence in the Greek text. No intervening marks of punctuation really should be here. And uh, so you really should take a deep breath and read with great excitement all the verses. <laughs> um, I didn't have that strength left for the evening service. But that's what it is. It's, it's a peon of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of Christ Jesus. That's the way in which it should be read. All the way through to verse 14, because you see it leads to worship. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul in those first eight chapters of, of Romans focuses on uh, justification and, uh, and on the... The the work of the cross and then he moves on and he talks about electing grace so that when he comes to chapter 11 verse 33, he can't contain any longer, but he breaks out again into praise and he says in chapter 11 of Romans verse 33, oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given to him that he should be repaid. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever amen it leads to praise it leads us to sing such hymns as that favorite of mine long ere the sun began its days or moon shot forth her silver rays salvation scheme was fixed twas done in covenant by the three in one the father spake the son replied the spirit with them both complied grace moved the cause for saving man And wisdom drew the noble plan. The father chose his only son to die for sins that man had done. Emmanuel to the choice agreed and thus secured a numerous seed. He sends his spirit from above to call the objects of his love. Not one shall perish or be lost. His blood has bought them, dear they cost. What high displays of sovereign grace. What love to save a ruined race. My soul adore his lovely name. By whom thy free Salvation came, lines that I memorized when I was a boy. Now, even in an evening service such as this, there may be someone who is lost and undone and outside of Christ, you don't know Jesus. Let me say to you, the gospel does not come to you in any other way but addressing you as a needy sinner in need of grace. Your business is with the demand to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the old teachers in the church used to say, salvation is like this. You would uh, go to the door and it says, whosoever will. You walk through and look back and then you find over the door chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Your business is to walk through the door and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, which he enables the sinner to do by grace. Election is not given to you as an excuse. It is given to God's people. This truth is revealed to us for our assurance It is not given as an excuse for you. Because before the judgment seat, the question will not be, were you elect or were you not? The question will be, did you sin willingly? Did you reject Christ willingly? And every unbeliever will say, yes, I willingly rejected the gospel or what God had revealed to me of his truth. And so believe in Christ and then you will know it is because he drew you and has loved you from eternity And I charge you by the all-sufficient blood of Calvary, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and refuse, and your blood is on your own head. The sovereignty of God shows you that you are completely in the hands of a living, sovereign God. And so may His Spirit enable you to go to Him that you may ask Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And go to Him and say, Lord, save me or I perish. Venture on him, venture holy, let no other trust intrude. Well, these are a few thoughts from this passage on this Sunday evening about the electing grace of God. May it fill our hearts and minds and move us to eager and earnest service for him. Amen.